0: and Marketing, the podcast for people who believe that great ideas can come from anywhere. I'm your host, Steve Falkross. Join me for conversations with eclectic marketers and creative thinkers. Yes, and Marketing is brought to you by Verblio, the friendliest content creation platform in the business. This week, I'm talking with Atul Minocha, multi-time CMO, angel investor, professor of marketing, and author of Lies, Damn Lies, and Marketing. As a partner with consulting group Chief Outsiders, he serves as a fractional CMO for growth and midsize companies, giving him rare insight into myriad business and marketing strategies across both startups and Fortune 500 companies. I was introduced to a tool by Doug Burdett, host of the Marketing Book podcast, who named him the best new author on his podcast last year. I was excited to have a tool on the show to get his take on some of the biggest topics in marketing fundamentals, including the role of emotions in marketing, the limits of understanding ROI, and the biggest lie that marketers tell. Atul and I spoke on January 7th, 2022. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Atul Manocha, welcome to Yes
1: and Marketing. Great to be here, Steve. Thank you for inviting me.
0: You're welcome. So first question for you, worst Pink Floyd song to play if you're trying to evangelize a potential new fan?
1: Oh, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Pink Floyd doesn't have bad songs. In fact, the the truth is I was up Still about one o'clock last night, listening to various versions of Pink Floyd, including some of the covers of the greatest gig in the sky. I mean, you know, the, the song, which is with no words. And so, no, there is no bad Pink Floyd song.
0: So you deny the first question.
1: Yes. What is the best Pink Floyd
0: song to listen to when you're working out?
1: Uh... Working out is, a, is sort of the difficult part, <laughs> but my favorite Pink Floyd songs are Shine on Crazy Diamond, which I think is sort of the ultimate, but I like they're Comfortably Numb, Wish You Were Here, Greatest Gig in the Sky, Time, Echoes. All of them, or any of them, will work for any activity. Perfect. Your most random hobby that you're most passionate about? My most recent random hobby, which Most of my newer friends, people who didn't know me from 30 years ago were surprised, but people who knew me from 30 years ago, they probably were not as surprised, is that I've taken to um, off-roading. So I love going off-roading in the mountains of Nevada and California and Death Valley and all that. The most surprising course that you became
0: passionate about from either undergrad in engineering in India or your MBA from Yale?
1: How about I answer both? Great. So in in my engineering school, I was doing mechanical engineering, trying to become a car designer. But probably the most memorable course and the most interesting course that I did was uh, biomechanics. How does the human body work from an engineering standpoint? So we were taking an engineer's look into all the whole human body. So the fluid dynamics and the muscles and the engineering, the levers and all that. So that was very, very fascinating. The most interesting or the most impactful course uh, that I did at Yale, this is kind of an awkward answer from my on my part. It's also the course that I remember nothing of. Don't ask me anything about what did I learn. But it was the most impactful in hindsight. The course was called individual and group behavior. We called it IGB. And you know, I was 26 years old, straight from you know engineering school and believed in Uh, engineering. And I was in this liberal university called Yale. And so I was almost fighting this liberal individual and group behavior thing. So I did not take anything in it. So, you know, went in one year, came out the other, nothing is retained. But in hindsight, I do think it was the most impactful course, because it really made me understand down the road, not while I was doing it, but down the road, how important individual and group behavior is both in terms of sort of being in a corporation, but also from a marketing standpoint.
0: How much of your career do you attribute to random fate from one manager who took you off the engineering team?
1: Oh, all of it. Because if it wasn't for that initial inflection point, even before my career started, I would actually probably be regretful. But more than that, in fact, I mentioned this to my students when they're looking for career advice. I tell them, you know, in my corporate life, I probably had you know, 20 jobs within the same company, get promoted or all that. Maybe half of them were of my choosing. The other half were thrust upon me. In hindsight, some of the best moves that I made career-wise came from the ones that were thrust upon me. So in other words, if I had just sort of stuck to, no, no, I'm not going to take this because I haven't thought about it, or this is what my plan is, and you know, I'm going to reject everything else, I think I would have been worse off. So what I tell my students is that uh, don't reject opportunities that are given to you. It may not look like the best thing, but make the most of it. And usually it will turn out better than you thought. And that's been definitely true for me. That's fascinating. How does
0: that translate into career advice that you give young marketers as they try to be super intentional about their careers?
1: I tell them planning is good. Working hard is good. I mean, everybody tells you that. Your parents will tell you that. Your senior cousins and uncles will tell you that. But ability to flex, ability to make the most of what might come your way outside of your plan is equally important. And in my case, it's been at least as important, if not more important. So that's sort of one advice I give young marketeers. The other advice I give them, and this is also sort of reflected in my book, And that is that marketing is actually one of the functions which is probably broader than any other function in in a corporation. And I'm not saying it because I'm a marketeer. But if you were to sort of uh, talk to a CEO also, you'll find that if a CEO understands what marketing is, they'll sort of say, wow, that's a big span of things that that fall under uh, sort of the marketing umbrella. So how does it translate as a career advice to a young marketeer? I tell them that don't become too specialized. I mean, you do have to learn a few things. And as you progress in age, as you progress in seniority, the wider, the more of that full span marketing you can do, better off you will be. Because that's what will be expected of you. I mean, if you're a CMO, you cannot say that I'm a digital marketing CMO. Because again, you don't have to be equally good at everything, but you should have done everything by the time you become a CMO. So
0: the next round of questions that I have for you, Atul, are about your book, Lies, Damn Lies, and Marketing, which I love the title. Doug Burdett recommended this from the uh, Marketing Book Podcast. He told me I had to read it. I had to talk to you. He was absolutely right. I'm going to ask you a few improv questions about the book, and then we'll go into some of my my favorite parts about it and the things that I want to hear more from you. Sure. Who's a bigger liar, statistics or marketing? Um, Marketing. (laughs) (laughs) What is my head of marketing currently deceiving me
1: about the most? They are probably promising you that they should not promise you. That's sort of the the overall lie that most marketeers give you. And as I discussed that in the book, they come from two possible sources. One of them is that they don't know any better, which I think of as error of omission. If I don't know, then yes, you can still criticize me, but at least I didn't lie. I mean, that's the best answer I could give you. But then there are others which are errors of commission where I do know better or should know better, but I still choose to give you something that you want to hear, you would like to hear, but I really have no way of delivering that. So in other words, I give this to you only to get you off my back.
0: Can you give an example of that? Like, what are some common places where this
1: happens? One of the most common examples of this, and uh, this can be very controversial, but I still would love to discuss this further, is on ROI, return on investment uh, on, on the marketing dollars. It's very commonplace for CEOs to insist on, show me the ROI. You want to do this? What will I get for it? I mean, you know, that's what you ask engineers. That's what you ask everybody. I mean, that's how you lived your life, business life, uh, evaluating and making decisions. You weigh different things and say, give me the ROI. And if the marketing person truthfully says that, I can tell you how much it will cost. I can tell you in generalities what I'm expecting we will get. But no, I cannot give you a mathematical ROI. Then the CEO's quick answer will be, oh, well, either you're not a good marketeer Or you aren't getting funded for that project next, you know. So that is one of the more common lies given. And that is also, in my view, one of the more common mistakes made by a CEO. Because they're rejecting some good marketing things just because the marketer was unable to give the ROI.
0: Is marketing in a unique position as being one of the only members, if not the only member of the executive leadership team that can't speak in fluid black and white numbers, and that's why it's so much harder?
1: Let me, let, me, let me break this question down a little bit. I do think marketing can and should speak in black and white numbers. I think the point I'm making is that those numbers may not be ROI numbers. So let me give you some examples of that. This is a true story. So I was working with two clients over, over different periods of time, similar industry. They used to go to the same trade shows. One of them believed that they should go to the trade show because 80% of their annual sales, they pick up their purchase orders from there. So there's a, it's a perfect ROI for us. We don't even have to count. I mean, 80% of our revenue comes from the purchase orders we collect from that trade show every year. Another company says, you know, I'm not sure why we go there because we never pick up any purchase order from there. So now, as a marketeer, should I tell the first company, double down on that, kill everything else, because 80% is coming from there, why bother with anything else that you might be spending on, and tell the other company, don't spend any money on that? No, that, that would be a wrong answer for both of them. Because what's happened is, that, and it's actually become more complex than the way it was 30 years ago, because of digital marketing, because of all the different channels people have, attribution is very difficult. When does the mind say that I'm going to make the decision and write the check? The company that's picking up all the purchase orders at a trade show is simply picking up purchase orders from the trade show. It's not that the decision is being made at the trade show. The decision might be made based on every other place that company has interacted with the customer or the customer has interacted with the company without even the company knowing, you know, maybe on the web page, maybe on the Facebook, maybe customer interact, maybe, you know, on Instagram, whatever that might be. So. Killing all those because, heck, I never got an order from Instagram may be a bad decision. Similarly, the company that doesn't pick up any purchase orders, if they decide, well, we are not going there, they might send a wrong signal to to their potential clients that, oh, you haven't seen them. Maybe they are out of business. Maybe they are going out of business. I don't want to deal with somebody who is going under. So you cannot make decisions based purely on, hey, you know, number of sales divided by what's my cost of trade show? Is it a positive ROI or not? So that's a a bad way of looking at it. It's super helpful. Let me follow up
0: on that and ask you, what are some marketing tactics that you've seen work with a great ROI number not attached
1: to them? Very good question. And you are leading me to the point that I wanted to make. And I talk about this in the book, but let me explain it in my own voice here. And that is that, I mean, you lived in the Bay Area, so you know Route 101 between San Francisco and San Jose, you know, roughly about 50 miles. And on a good day, in the middle of the day, it'll probably take you anywhere from two to three hours to travel 50 miles. So in either direction on 101, there are probably a dozen huge oversized Apple billboards. Most of them are dedicated to iPhones. And most of them within the iPhone, most of them are dedicated to Pictures, photographs that customers have taken, so, you know, they usually have this shot on iPhone, you know, and they'll give a little name of, you know, Bob Smith in Arizona, who took this beautiful picture of the Joshua Tree National Park or whatever. You know. So you think about it, does Tim Cook ever get the answer to the question, how many more iPhones have we sold because of those billboards? Never. He probably doesn't even ask those questions. I, I'm pretty sure he doesn't ask because I have a lot of respect for him. So why is Apple spending millions of dollars every year when they cannot attribute any ROI to those billboards? The answer is the following. And again, I haven't talked to them, but I'm sort of just putting two and two together here. Traffic is getting worse every day. Okay? So they know a lot of their potential customers and existing customers are spending a lot of time on Route 101. Now, why have they chosen to advertise iPhone? Why not an iMac? Why not something else? My view of this is that if you think about it, showing shot on iPhone kind of billboards is appealing to both users of iPhone, current users of iPhone, as well as non-users of iPhone. Because when, it, when a user of iPhone who's either a loyalist, which means that they'll buy an iPhone anyway, but it doesn't hurt to strengthen that relationship. So if I'm an iPhone user, and if I say, "Oh, that's an interesting, uh, maybe I should use my camera a little more. That will make me more loyal to the phone that I already have, which is a good thing for Apple. If I'm not using an iPhone and say, really? I'm not sure I can take a picture like that from my Samsung, so maybe I, next time I should get an iPhone. So from my point of view, it's perfect marketing, appealing both existing customers and potential customers in a, in a place where... You're getting more and more eyeballs, spending more and more time on that freeway, and there is no ROI attached to that.
0: Perfect. That's a great transition into talking more about the emotional strategies in in marketing, which you also bring up in your book. So we here at uh, Yes and Marketing love irrational thinking and alchemy. Uh, have you seen marketers be rational about marketing to people who inherently act irrationally?
1: Yeah, this is uh, this is one of my bigger learnings and bigger things that I'm actually uh, delivering through the book and hopefully through this interview as well. I grew up as an engineer. I trained as an engineer. wanted to be an engineer. So I'm very familiar with data. In fact, I teach data analytics at a graduate school. So I'm, I'm not data phobic by any definition. But what I discovered over time, uh, and then I actually learned that through some of the, some of the books that you see behind me, humans even if they are engineers even if they are nasa scientists they are humans to begin with and they may deny this but there is a significant element of emotion in them all of us why because every one of us has a primal brain has a, sort of the lizard brain so to speak and we cannot deny it and it's also the part of the brain that we cannot train i mean we can we can train our rational brain but the primal brain is what it is and we cannot keep it quiet, we cannot keep it silent, we cannot put it in the doghouse. So primal brain will respond to whatever stimulus you give to the human being, even if it's a NASA scientist. And and sometimes the primal brain is irrational. So as a marketeer, I'm not saying throw out the data, I'm not saying don't serve the rational brain. The point I'm making is don't ignore the primal brain, don't ignore the lizard brain. In fact, I even go a step further and I say, usually the best way to enter somebody's brain is through the primal brain. So if you can win me over, if you can win my primal brain over with whatever you offer, I'll say, oh, good. Let me spend some time and then I'll sort of uh, delegate it up to the rational brain. Now you you make the decision, but I at least approve of this. you know. So that's, I think, how it works. And that's why a good marketeer serves both the primal brain first and then the rational brain.
0: Can you give us some of your favorite examples about serving the primal brain first, marketers who've really got this done well?
1: So one example is there was an insurance company. And, you know, most people would think of insurance as sort of a dull, difficult product to sell. And how do you distinguish one versus the other? And the moment you start asking questions, they'll throw you 25-page legal lease contract. And, you know, so i say, forget it. So how do you, how do you, promote yourself? How do you tell somebody that they need insurance in the first place? So there was one particular insurance company, instead of just throwing some gobbled stuff and saying we are the best, we are the longest serving, we have been in business for 140 years and we insured Thomas Jefferson or whatever, you know. They showed a graphic of a swimmer on a beach and a shark following that swimmer. That was their opening image. And then they went to the, the usual story. So to me, that's a very good example that you first appeal to the primal brain. Don't ever think that you don't need insurance because you never know when you might, you might have danger lurking right behind you. So that was, I think, a, a good example. Let me give you another example. In America these days, you know, smoking is not that big. America has lots of other challenges, but smoking is not, not a big deal today. Back in the 70s and 80s, I think there was a lot more uh, reduction required on the smoking side of things. But if you look at some of the ads, both here and in Europe, there's one particular ad I remember uh, where it's a, like a cemetery, very, very green with white crosses. And so the, in the foreground, there's a section which doesn't have any crosses. There's an open patch of green. And the words over there say, space for non-smokers. So that to me, is is a very graphic way of showing what smoking will do to you and what not smoking will allow you to do.
0: Those are great examples. So I'm a huge fan of behavioral sciences. I've read tons of it. We had Rory Sutherland from Alchemy on our show last year. So I'm totally convinced that the human mind makes decisions based on irrational behavior patterns and that marketers need to connect emotionally in order to influence them. But once we get into the brainstorming room and we start working on our campaigns, we immediately forget that and go into rational mode. Do you have any tricks or best practices for how to keep that at front and center in marketers' minds that we need to focus on emotional connection?
1: So I don't think it's a bad idea going to the rational, depending on what product or service you're talking about. Because if I'm selling an engine or if I'm selling a jet engine to Airbus or Boeing, eventually, I mean, in other words, I cannot sell an engine based purely on emotions. So the point I want to make is that emotions need to be included, and they are usually the place where you start. And then the transition happens, and you you make your choice uh, based on, on the data that's given to you then another common mistake many b2b marketers do is that they'll say oh yeah you know, this is i'm talking to a phd or i'm talking to a very intelligent group of engineers so let me send them an excel with all the data showing how good our product is compared to the competition and that excel is emailed and then two weeks later no decision is made and the guy says you know i'm still considering i'm still debating which one to take so well uh, they haven't decided based on the 12 data points i gave them maybe they need 10 more. So I give them a bigger Excel spreadsheet, hoping that now they'll be overwhelmed with the the data and and they'll make the decision and nothing happens. So my advice to a company like that is more data is not going to help you. What's probably happening is that the primal brain is keeping you off or they're getting overwhelmed not only by you, but the other guys too. So it's a deer in the headlights kind of situation here the only way to break that log jam the mental log jam is to appeal to the emotional side and then once that door is open things will go well and you don't need to send more data data that you've sent is probably more than enough That's a perfect transition example
0: to talk a little bit about market research and some of the the points you make there in the book. Can you talk about some of the big flaws in the way that marketers think about market research and also some of the ways that you recommend to marketers to fix those flaws, to better connect?
1: Yeah, very good question. I think there are two major flaws in the way market research is conducted by um, maybe novices or maybe even slightly more experienced people. One flaw is that they believe that by simply asking the questions, we'll get all the answers we want. In other words, if we don't know something, that's simply because I did not ask that question. So they end up making the questions very exhaustive and exhausting and sort of say, okay, now that I've got everything, now I know what the customer wants. But the mistake over there is that, A, customers sometimes don't quite know what they want. I mean, Steve Jobs is famous for uh, explaining how he came up with iPad with this same thing. The other uh, mistake with market research, and I kind of alluded to this uh, in my first response, was that people try to make the questions or the survey instruments extremely long. So they want to make sure that I cover every base. Now, I'm not disagreeing in the sense that you need to know. But then if I'm a respondent to that survey, you have to think about me too. I mean, don't get me started thinking it'll take me two minutes and three minutes, but then throw me a question where I have to to rank 10 attributes and then also go across the top line and sort of saying, is it important, less important, more important, and I'm sort of saying, you know, that's when you get answers where it's middle, 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 middle kind of answers. You get middling answers, which are useless. So you spend all the money, you feel great because I talked to thousand people, but what you got is not really their view. They just wanted to get you off their back and they give you the middle score. So that's, that's bad. The third mistake, and I said I'll give you two, but I'm thinking of a third one too. And this happens especially when in smaller companies, especially with B2B companies, where people say, you know what, I have only 20 customers. Even if I talk to all of them, even if I survey all of them, that's not statistically valid, is it? And the answer is, it is, and but it's at least very useful. Because here's what happens. I in fact I make this point in the book that getting richer conversations going, even with a handful of customers, is far better than sort of getting those middling answers from a thousand customers. And some big companies like Procter & Gamble have learned it the hard way. They were doing some surveys, they were getting anywhere with the answers. But then once they started visiting and observing and having those 20-minute conversations uh, with the lady in the house, that's when they discovered how Febreze is used and how customers of Febreze actually think of Febreze. They thought that Febreze would be an easy sell because it solves all the odor problems. But the problem that the company did not anticipate is that we all are in denial that I have a house that smells. In fact, I deny that I, I have any body odor. You may have body odor. I don't. Your house may smell bad, not mine. Why? And, and, and not because it's me versus you, but because we get used to our own smells. We, you get used to our own odor at, um, at, at home. So it was very difficult to convince a house owner that your house smells bad. It's the other people's house that smells bad. So by positioning it as something that will get rid of your home odor was going nowhere. When they positioned it as, once you do the cleaning, but well, think of it as a reward, as a last cherry on the, on the cleaning chore, then it started selling. And who, who told them that? Not any survey, not, I mean, not that 60% of the people said that I, you know, they discovered that in one or two conversations they had with a few customers. I think the lady said that my house doesn't smell, but I feel that I need to reward myself by spraying that as the final step. And boom, that was a very good explanation that worked for most other people as well.
0: It's an incredible example. This is probably a good time to take a step back and ask for your definition of marketing because it flows into that. And then I'll have a follow-up after that.
1: (laughs) Yeah, so marketing, you know, it's been defined by so many people. I'll give you two definitions uh, of marketing and there, there can be five others that I probably will appreciate even more than my own. One is, and I'm going to reference this because I'm, even though you didn't word your question that way, but usually it's, uh, it's in reference to sales. How is marketing different from sales? So the first definition I'll share with you is that marketing is more about what you should be selling, what you should have in, in your inventory for future sales. Sales is about getting rid of what you have in inventory today. So marketing is a little bit more futuristic. Second definition I'll give you, which actually builds on this first one, and this is really my own. And, you know, I told you that I love cars and I wanted to be a car designer. So this this is, I'm going to use a car example. So every car has headlights. And, you know, you have a high beam, you have a low beam in headlights. A good car, a functioning car, needs to have both. So I think of sales as the low beam. It sort of throws light on what's immediately ahead of the car first 20 feet, first 30 feet. And you need it. You absolutely need it to be successful in your driving journey. But if you want to go somewhere far, you also need the high beam. And the high beam focuses on what's out there, you know, 500 yards ahead of you. So that's marketing. So a good combination in a great company would be that you have low beam in in sales and high beam in, in marketing. And again, by using high beam and low beam, I'm not putting any, uh, any value on, the, on these two functions. I'm using it only as an example.
0: Perfect. I found those both really helpful. Let's go deeper into marketing. Uh, I love your concept of big M marketing and small M marketing. It's something I've been wrestling with for a really long time, which is marketing is so all-encompassing. It needs to do the long-term, the short-term, the tactical, and what do you even focus on? So I'm hoping that you wouldn't mind sharing that definition with our audience too, and then talking about how do you even begin to think about where your resource allocation should be between the two?
1: Thank you for asking that question, because that is actually fundamental to why marketing works or why it doesn't work, in my view. So most of the visible marketing, and I'm speaking not as a marketeer or a CEO of a, of a content agency, but as consumers, most marketing that we see as consumers is what I call small marketing. You know, the website, the logos, the promotions, the, the advertising, the blogs, Google ads, everything. All that is good. All that is useful. All that is what's visible. But if if you are a non-marketeer, but you're just a customer, you don't get to see the strategy behind that. You know, you don't know what, what Starbucks was thinking when they came up with whatever they come up with, Right. That is big M marketing, sort of the behind the scenes things that happen uh, in a corporation, usually not directly visible to the end user or or, or to the customer. So the point I make in the book is that even though small M marketing is the more visible part, even though small M marketing is where most of your marketing dollars are spent and should be spent, but to get the most out of your small M marketing dollars, make sure that whatever you're spending on small M is most effective, You you must spend a little bit of money and time on big M marketing. So once you get the strategy going, once you have the foundation laid out in big M marketing, you'll get a much higher ROI on your smaller M marketing
0: dollars. How do you staff between the two? I'm thinking about positions in our company. So my head of marketing is this. Is product marketing really where the strategy happens and that's kind of like a different kind of division and then you've got like your more day-to-day paid digital marketers, content marketers
1: that are doing more of the tactical stuff to keep up the small M? Yeah, so I don't want to make it sound like it's a level thing, but usually the more senior person is more in tune with the big M marketing because they've spent more years, they've seen how just small M doesn't work, They they have a slightly longer distance vision. But you can have a 25-year-old who thinks very strategically, and that person can also take on the role of doing Big M marketing for you. But the key point here is that the two should not be divorced from each other. They are separate, but they need to work together. The, the, The person who's doing Big M marketing should understand how to translate that Big M into Small M, and the people who are doing Small M marketing should have the confidence in the people who are doing big M so that, uh, you know, they don't sort of say, oh, they're just talking of Mooney stuff, you know? So it has to be a close collaboration between the two. I have about 15 more questions to ask you about your book, which I'm not going to get to
0: today. I think I told you that this might happen. Uh, First of all, I just love the book. It just is so well designed, the amount of information and interesting flow. I'm interested where your background in engineering came into designing a book that is just so easy to consume.
1: I will take that as a compliment. <laughs> as an engineer, I do think in terms of uh, solving problems. So I saw a problem for which I wrote this book, and then I wanted to present it in, in digestible chunks. So that credit I will take. But I will give credit to my publishers for uh, really laying it out the way it should be laid out. And as a good marketeer, I know what I don't know. So I uh, I was very happy to accept their advice, and their guidance and their leadership in putting it all together. So it was a very collaborative arrangement and I'm very happy with the results. Awesome. Should we talk about your day job for a second? This is my day job, talking to you. <laughs> Chief
0: Outsiders, how does it work and what led you to becoming a fractional CMO?
1: Yeah, very interesting question. If you talk to hundred of us, there are hundred of us in Chief Outsiders, you'll probably get hundred different answers. So I'll give you my answer. I was very happy in corporate life had a very good career. I was not burnt out by corporations or the politics or anything like that. I was very happy. My last corporate employer, which was headquartered in in Princeton, New Jersey, they hired me out of uh, Rochester, New York, and said, we want you to run a $200 million business, which is out in Reno. And it can be run from Princeton, but because you're from outside the industry, we want you to spend six to nine months in Reno, Uh, learn the business, learn the people, and then move to Princeton, New Jersey and run it from here as it has been run forever. So I said, great, I can live anywhere for six to nine months. Just get me a furnished apartment, move my cars, and boom, we'll go. And then I'll do a house hunting trip and find a nice house to live in near Princeton, New Jersey. That's how it happened. I was supposed to be in Reno Lake Tahoe area for six to nine months. And that was 17 years ago. So I fell in love with Lake Tahoe when the company got sold, they uh, were moving the operations to the East Coast. So there was no way I was going to stay with in Lake Tahoe and now run the operation on the East Coast sitting here in the mountains. This is pre-COVID. And during COVID, I might have been able to make that case, but not you know, 17 or 15 years ago. So at that point, I decided, you know what? I love this place enough. I've been enough of a vagabond and moving around from city to city in the U.S. for so long. I'm going to make this the home base. And there aren't too many corporations, at least not then. I mean, now we have Tesla and Google and Apple here. But back then, you know, there weren't any corporations. So the only way for me to make a living was to uh, consult with with small to mid-sized companies. And that's how I got into Chief Outsiders about a little over nine years ago.
0: Super interesting. I'm really interested in knowing what's kind of the first conversation you have with the CEO that you're coming on to be a fractional CMO. And how do you set up the process? What are like the key milestones as you implement a marketing organization at a new smaller company?
1: So the way I like to have uh, that conversation with the CEO, and most of us at Chief Outsiders will will actually agree with this and will probably follow a similar approach, is that even though we are all marketeers, we have been marketeers uh, in our past life, all of us you know, with no exception. We don't start our conversation from marketing. And, and there's a reason for that. Businesses, regardless of the size, I mean, you, you could be the CEO of Honeywell, you may look to marketing to achieve certain things. But what you're really trying to do is solve a business problem, not a marketing problem. I mean, there may be a few exceptions that they're trying to win the sort of the advertising award or something like that. That's a marketing problem that they might be solving. But most business owners, most business leaders, regardless of the size, they have a business challenge. Either the sales are not growing as much as they should, or they have a new competitor, or they have a desire to go to a new market, or the competition has taken down the price. How do we respond? All of those are business challenges. Many of those can be solved by marketing. So in our first conversation with the CEO, even if the CEO starts with, what will you do for me in marketing? We usually try to sort of say, you know, let's step back a little. Let's talk about what is your business challenge? As a CEO, what are you facing? What is it that you'd like to see differently? What is your here state and what is your there state? And then we'll see if marketing can can, can build that bridge from here to there. Atul, is there
0: anything? There were a lot more questions that we had on this list. Uh, are there any key ones that we haven't asked today that you want
1: to make sure we covered? There is a whole long list. Maybe we should do a part two of this. I think so. Yeah. So if there is any closing thought that I'll leave your audience with, you mentioned that most of them are are from the marketing field. What I'll say is that I feel your pain. I've been through that because, you know, chances are that you are not the most loved function within the, be the most sexy function that everybody wants to join But once you join, you may not feel the most love within the company. If there's a big salesman, it's usually the sales guy who gets, you know, sent over to Hawaii and you sort of are the travel arrangements for the couple to go. So I hear your pain and I've lived that. The advice I would give you is that you have to sort of build that credibility within the organization. And it's not a matter of job security. It is that, it'll get you the job security, but it's more than that. It's about actually feeling good about what you do. I mean, there's no it's no fun going to work and so you're always feeling, I don't know if, I, if people love me or not. You want to be loved and the only way you're gonna get loved is if you build that credibility by not only saying yes sir and yes ma'am, when they ask for an ROI, don't say, yeah, I'll fake some numbers and I'll give you some ROI because that's what you want. Confront them tell them why certain things cannot be done. And they'll actually, sensible people will thank you for that. Sensible people will reward you for that. And that'll be my uh, closing uh, advice to most younger marketeers. Atul, how can people find
0: you? How can they find lies, damn lies uh, on the shelves? And how can they find chief outsiders?
1: Lies, damn lies, and marketing, it's on Amazon. It's it made it through to the bestseller list on I think more than a dozen categories. I even went to the overall marketing category number three. So you go to Amazon, lies, damn lies, it'll work. One of the advantages uh, that comes with an unusual name is that there's only one of me on LinkedIn. So me too. That's true, but but you have only half of that figured out. Not, not <laughs> uh, so I'm relatively easy to find. I think in my LinkedIn career, I've said no maybe four times when somebody sends a request to connect with me. So I'm a cheap date uh, as far as LinkedIn is concerned. So that's how you'll find me. And Chief Outsiders, when I joined Chief Outsiders, it was like, chief what? What is this thing? Fortunately, over the last uh, 12 years or so, Chief Outsiders is relatively well-known. So if you Google Chief Outsiders, if you Google fractional CMO you'll find it. But come to me and I'll introduce you to 100 of my colleagues that make the most sense for your interaction. So that's what I would do. And I'm appealing this to both marketers as well as uh, CEOs.
0: Awesome. If you're a marketer who needs marketing guidance, we have the book for you. If you are uh, any other part of the company looking for marketing help, we have chief outsiders for you. Atul Minocha, thank you so much for being on Yes in Marketing.
1: Thank you. I really enjoyed it. Thank you, Steve, for having me.
0: Thanks for listening to Yes in Marketing. If you enjoy the show or learn something new today, please take a minute to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It means a lot. Thanks.